All right, hello everyone, and uh, welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. Yeah, it's been a little while since uh, we recorded our last episode. I think it's been a busy summer for us. You know, the quarantine has uh, been semi-lifted here in Ontario. Uh, where I live, we've entered phase three and so on, so you can kind of go out. And anyway, we uh, I started work back up again. And, all that kind of thing. So, but it's good to it's good yeah. to get back back yeah. to it. And uh, I mean, I am still unemployed, but I, uh, you know, I heard back from the evaluation committee at uh, Concordia, and my proposal was accepted. So I'm just kind of on the on the grind with uh, writing my thesis right now, and so I've been busy with that. Nice, man. But then on top of that, like yeah. recently, my roommate had a COVID-19 scare. Um, so, you know, while she was waiting to get results from the test that she took, we were basically quarantining the apartment. She was in self-isolation and like I was uh, cleaning shit throughout the house, you know, constantly sanitizing my hands, self-imposing this like yeah. sanitation regime, uh, cooking, cleaning, all this other shit. So it was, uh, it was like pretty yeah. demanding. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, here we are. Yeah. It's funny. That's, that's basically my actual job. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, there's so much sanitizing right mm-hmm. now and just like cleaning, making sure everything's in like looking good and good shape. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> So yeah, I'm working on this, uh, just for people who don't know, I'm, I'm working on this uh, project uh, for folks who mostly are uh, street involved and uh, have like drug addictions or other medical complications and sort of a transitional housing type of situation. And uh, so yeah, there's just a lot of making, making sure everything's clean and uh, all this kind of stuff. So it's funny that that that's what you've been doing because that's also what my job <laughs> entails. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not I'm not doing it as much anymore now. So, <laughs> but, yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Oh yeah, right. Uh, her results came back negative, so I'm not sure if I mentioned that. But yeah, no, I don't think you did. You used to call her a scare. Oh yeah, it's true. That's, that's true. Yeah, also, Alex and I actually managed to hang out. We got together, which was nice. We went to uh, uh, Alex Edwards' uh, cottage as well, who uh, listeners, listeners of the podcast will know from uh, many previous episodes. So a bunch of us all kind of were able to hang out there, which was a uh, nice kind of summertime diversion. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was really nice, actually. It was uh, right on Wolf Island, um, pretty, uh, pretty idyllic there. You know, it's quiet, lots of wind. You know, right, right along uh, the Fleuve Saint Laurent, right? So it's like, yeah, know, lots of wildlife. And we learned yeah, that. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, it, it's good, it's good. Uh, and we looked up, uh, didn't we? Look up the Ghanaian Keha names for the Saint Laurents, um, because Gananoque that is a town, and uh, that is kind of a variant of the. Of the of the the proper name for the Fleuve Saint Laurent is uh, Gananoque, uh, but I, I feel that's a like a French uh, interpretation. Oh yeah, like a French, Fran, Fran, uh, 
the frank francisation like frank uh i don't I actually don't know how to say that in english yeah because like it's, you call it an anglicization yeah. but how do you say that for like a frenchization yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah frenchify yeah french yeah it's the frenchified <laughs> version of the but it's yeah. something like this uh, like in kind of okay yeah yeah so that's kind of neat uh yeah. to learn yeah speaking of which uh Speaking of uh, Haudenosaunee people and language and land, uh, claims to land, <laughs> uh, there's something that we kind of thought it would be good to discuss uh, at the outset of this podcast before we get into our main topic. Oh, which I realized I haven't even mentioned. <laughs> uh, so our main topic for today, what we will be talking about is uh, the film uh, The 20th Century, directed by Matthew Rankin, uh, Canadian director. And uh, it's a great film. We'll we'll get there, uh, uh, but we thought it'd be really interesting to talk about in light of some of our interests on the pod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, before we got there, I thought it'd just be worthwhile to mention, uh, in case folks are not aware or haven't really been paying attention to this, that there um, is a kind of occupation happening right now uh, at uh, the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve. And so the town of Caledonia is adjacent uh, to the reserve there. And there are certain development companies who have, uh, through some very shady and underhanded dealings, purchased, quote unquote, unceded uh, territory from the uh, Six Nations. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's from the Six Nations Band Council specifically, which is an institution that was imposed through the Indian Act in uh, the early 20th century, which has replaced the traditional forms of Haudenosaunee governance and uh, in the form of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And it's not exactly uh, very popular amongst the Haudenosaunee. The people who actually turn out to vote in these banned elections are like hilariously small percentages of the population. It's like 4% or something <laughs> yeah. like this. <laughs> so it's uh, all I have to say is it's not a legitimate institution with real, real claims to land ownership, right? And so when they're selling off uh, Six Nations land at uh, bargain basement prices to these real kind of sinister development type characters. You know that's that's a huge problem. Yeah, like there's no there's no nationwide consent by the people on the de development project, and that's what a huge issue is, right? Because like in, at least from from what I've read in not only like braiding sweetgrass, but also Gerald Tayaki Alfred's. Uh, work part of Haudenosaunee governance is full consent right it's not like majority politics or something like this or like who turns out to vote right it has nothing to do with that it has to yeah. do with finding a consensus amongst everyone so with this housing project uh going on uh basically this uh this occupation which has been called the uh, 1492 land back lane is really is really a defense of this territory, right? That's uh, that's yeah. unceded. It's in the process of being kind of developed into, you know, over over a thousand ha uh, houses. This land is part of this uh, old kind of agreement or 
deed between the British and the uh, the Haudenosaunee called uh, the Haldeman Tract, and it's like a gigantic six mile long strip of land or something. It's six miles to either side yeah, of the Grand yeah. River. So from source to the mouth in Lake Erie, after the uh, American Revolutionary War in which the Haudenosaunee fought, they were given this piece of land because uh, the land that they had previously been living on south of the Great Lakes was ceded to the uh, new American quote-unquote yeah. republic. <laughs> And so this was the compensation that the British crown offered to the Haudenosaunee people. And uh, effectively, it has never been delivered. And so there's an ongoing claim that's been in Canadian courts now for decades to try and and, uh, reclaim this land, which was kind of uh, sold off and stolen piecemeal through a lot of kind of underhanded tactics. You could read about it in uh, Susan Hill's excellent book, The Clay We Are Made Of, uh, where she actually goes through this history in like very specific detail. Uh, it's, it's worth worth checking out, especially if you live in this area. It's uh, worth paying attention to. So, yeah. so And it's actually really interesting for our purposes that the name of the housing development before it's been reclaimed was Mackenzie Meadows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll see. You'll see why that is relevant. But now that Haudenosaunee land defenders have begun occupying the territory, they've uh, re- renamed it 1492 Land Back Lane. And so this is very contentious. The OPP have been down there brutalizing people, firing off rubber bullets. Uh, they've been using, you know, pepper spray, all this classic kind of shit. And they're jamming communications. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty brutal, actually. They've arrested numerous people, like I think as many as like 20 or more people. Yeah. They have been flying surveillance oh, helicopters yeah. drones, and drones. Yeah. yeah. There are, uh, you know, just... Your average uh, Canadian white racists down there as well uh, with, you know, guns and leaving signs. There was racist kind of signage that was left up to try and like threaten and intimidate the land defenders by uh, citizens uh, of Caledonia, which uh, is utterly despicable Mm. and disgusting actually to see. Totally. Yeah, that not only is there this kind of institutional like white supremacy at the level of the development and uh, the police, but there's also just people taking it upon themselves out of their own, you know, using their free time. (laughs) Yeah, using their free time to just go and harass people out of like their race hatred, and that is, uh, you know, no, totally. But uh, even after, even after this. These arrests, there have been a bunch of people that have returned now. Uh, today, I think, I think today or yesterday, a caravan of uh, Oneida showed up in support, yeah. and uh, and people there yeah, are beginning to, uh, you know, tell folks, indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, to come out and support, you know, and help um, help occupy the space. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bring supplies. Um, you can also listen to a pretty good podcast. That's an interview. It's on a warrior life podcast, uh, hosted by mm-hmm. Pam Palmeter. Um, so definitely check that mm-hmm. out too. 
I also know that uh, One Dish, One Mike has been talking about it as well. Yeah, you can also donate, which I think we would really encourage. Uh, there's uh, there's a GoFundMe that you can find. There's a Facebook page, 1492 Laneback Lane. But there's also like an email where you can just uh, send uh, donations to try and help with like legal funds and uh, other things. Like yeah, yeah, that. yeah. It's um so definitely worth kind of doing the material support piece uh, on this kind absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely, it's um. Uh, we'll we'll leave it in the show notes, but uh, I'll I'll name it out now too. It's uh, land yeah. landback six nations at gmail dot com, uh, but the six is with uh, the number instead of spelled out. Yeah, so we would really encourage anyone listening to this to uh, give a few bucks if you have anything to spare. Um, and uh, yeah, also Premier Doug Ford's uh, comments just were you know displayed his absolute ignorance of the issues, totally. like his total disregard for the, the history. But I think you know it's a, there's actually something really telling about his comments where he said, you know, oh, you can't just steal people's uh, future homes. That's not fair. And the fact that he would say something like that shows that he literally does not know about the actual history of the Haudenosaunee um, and the Six Nations in particular in this province. And I just find that really uh, telling and really indicative. It's like so many of these settler communities are built on what were meant to be the future homes of the Six Nations, right? Like that's precisely like the most hypocritical thing you could possibly (laughs) say. But I honestly think it was done in ignorance. Like he just doesn't know. And I think so many people who come up through settler society, even living where I live, like I actually live on Haldeman Track land. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You do. I think most of the people who live here aren't even aware that that's the case um, and that are, are ignorant of this history. The fact that someone could rise to the highest office in this province without having the knowledge of that history, you know, just goes to show the way in which white ignorance operates, right? Like, and white supremacy operates through forgetting of the dispossession of indigenous yeah. people. And uh, racialized people more generally. Uh, But in this case, obviously, uh, we want to focus on the kind of specificity. There's just so much at play there that you can have this entire settler society, which has managed to forget uh, its own history and the way in which it did steal the future homes from the Haudenosaunee of the Six Yeah, I mean, Frantz Fanon talks about this. I think it's in The Wretched of the Earth where he's just saying how, like, yeah, forgetting is like an integral part of processes of colonialism. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of white people like have that attitude of like, oh, like, well, what about my home? Like, I wouldn't want someone to take my house, my car, like my family, like, you know, that's not fair. And it's this really short-sighted, like extremely limited perspective on the way in which these kind of historical processes really operate. And there's a real lack of imagination there when it comes to thinking about different forms of land uh, ownership and uh, political arrangement that might be a bit more inclusive and involve redistribution and recognition of this uh, of, of the land yeah, history. Yeah, right? definitely. And I mean, that rationale is also very misguided too, because that's not really what this is about. It's not about Haudenosaunee people kind of just going out there and like trying to kick people out of their homes. <laughs> You know, yeah. that's just not what it is, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, on the contrary. Yeah. And 
it just kind of cuts to the way like Canada can be so incredibly like disappointing and like its history is this uh, history of disappointment mm-hmm. where there's a promise, right? There's a promise that um, the Six Nations will be given this land. And instead, <laughs> you know, they're given this like tiny, ultimately like a minute piece of the whole tract, you know, they have one little piece. They've managed to keep that little piece that they have as some of the best land, even as it was judged in the past that that was the worst land and we're going to force them onto that, you know, we're going to force them off this good land that white settlers want and leave them on this on this lower quality land. And yet white settlers through their the construction of their communities have damaged and poisoned the land that they earlier saw as the better quality land. And now they want to take the tiny bit of land, which they had earlier judged to be the worst land that is left, you mm-hmm. know, and the Haudenosaunee have managed to keep that land in such a condition that it becomes like, oh, prime real estate, yeah. you know, like it's actually in good shape. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have our houses like amidst these nice like trees and creeks that are clean and yeah, so on and yeah. so forth. That's just so very cynical. It just shows uh, the dead end uh, of these settler societies. And I think like Doug Ford and his current government in Ontario, like if we are going to look at it kind of materially speaking, like they were backed primarily by uh, developers, big land developers and uh, condominium builders and all these kind of these kind of corporations, right, that are extremely powerful in this province and have a lot of um, capital that they're able to really like push their guy uh, into office. And so anyway, it's no surprise that he would be so supportive of their uh, attempts to just continue this uh, colonial and ultimately genocidal uh, project, right? Speaking of disappointment, maybe we should uh, talk about the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's do All it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that the film was disappointing, but it turns out that disappointment is a very uh, big theme of the film that we're going to be talking about today. So, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Buckle in. <laughs> Yeah, so this film is called The 20th Century, and it was uh, released in 2019, and director's Matthew Franken. He's a Winnipeg-based uh, filmmaker, and so this is actually his first feature-length film. And if you have not seen this film and you're listening to this, that's okay. I mean, you don't have to watch the film. But hopefully this will be able to stand on its own, but it, we'd highly, highly recommend it. It's a great film. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you'll laugh. You will we'll be like it's psychedelic, you know. It's very surreal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of character to the film, you know, I think. And it really does a excellent job of kind of capturing and analyzing the Canadian psyche in a yeah. way, I think you yeah. might say. Should we mm-hmm. – I mean, do you think there will be any spoilers in this episode? Like are we going to talk about the ending well, and stuff or – Yeah, there will absolutely be yeah. spoilers for the yeah. film. So if you like <laughs> want to watch it and don't want to hear what happens yeah. before you watch it yeah. – uh, then pause this and go watch it and then come back and listen to the rest <laughs> yeah, of what exactly. we're going to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's because yeah. it's a great, it's a great film though, because I mean, <clears throat> even watching it, there were a lot of things I, I didn't actually really know about the history of Canada and it's really based just at the turn of the 20th century. It's like, uh, takes place in 1899, basically uh, in Toronto 
you know, the all of the film sets are very, they're just very abstract, very theatrical. But um, the film yeah. itself is really interesting because it's it's basically a reimagining of Prime Minister Mackenzie King, who you know, like, you know, I've I've heard his name. You know, his name's on like grants that you can get as a student and. Uh, or like even Mackenzie Meadows, right? But like apart from that, yeah. <laughs> apart from that, I really don't know very much about him at all. Like I, I don't think I've ever really learned about him, even in the educa- educational institutions or anything like this. He's really the main character of this film, and and it turns out he he actually was prime minister for like twenty some years. He was like the first prime minister to hold office for that long like um, he was the longest reigning canadian prime minister yeah yeah and the film it's basically supposed to reconstruct canadian history but um rankin ends up selecting these very specific forms of discourse that were present like in the 19th century and he begins to rebuild and reconstruct these historical figures that are like real historical figures from Canadian political history and he embeds them in this world that retells Canadian history but is really focused or like places emphasis on all kinds of different themes, including disappointment, but like artificiality, fascism, political stagnancy, shame, mm-hmm. like mediocrity. Yeah. So <laughs> you might want to say that like, yeah, the film plays very fast and loose with history, yeah. but it does so in order to reconstruct a more psychological vision of what Canada is mm-hmm. and it does that through this kind of fun mode of storytelling which yeah like Alex was saying is very theatrical so it kind of pitches different uh, his uh, like real historical characters but into these roles it casts them as figures in this kind of surreal drama which is more of a, a more of a psychic drama than it is like a historical fiction or something yeah 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 so a big part of that is the way in which uses symbolism to kind of evoke uh, things about the Canadian character and about Canadian history to kind of explicate what Canada is. It does that in some really fun and creative ways that I think really resonated with us. So, okay, maybe it's worthwhile to just quickly like explain the plot, like roughly. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be a little difficult to do because it's a very strange, <laughs> very, <laughs> very strange plot. But basically, uh, Mackenzie King um, is cast as the protagonist and he has this relationship with his mother who is uh, this incredibly sinister character but she has all of these like, <laughs> visions for him yeah. and uh, they involve becoming prime minister and so he believes that it's sort of his destiny to become prime minister he believes that he will wed the woman who turns out to be the daughter of the governor general and he kind of pursues this uh, he competes for office to become the actual prime minister he falls short and then he kind of falls into this world of sin and vice for a while (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. where uh, basically, you know, he has a, a kind of foot fetish where he masturbates to boots. <laughs> Specific foot, boots. Footwear fetish. Used yeah. footwear. Used footwear. Yeah, and it's uh, very disgusting. Oh <laughs> it's God. like viscerally disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, his mother's former nurse is like a Quebecois nurse Lapointe, and she's based on Mackenzie King's real assistant. Uh, Ernest Lapointe, who helped Mackenzie King win in Quebec throughout his tenure as prime minister. So again, kind of playing with the historical characters, but then there's this drama that kind of plays out between like the governor general and his vision of like an imperial fury for yeah. the future of Canada, as opposed to the uh, Quebecois who are led by, what's his name? Uh, just uh, a J. Israel Tart. <laughs> yeah, J. Israel Tart, who uh, believes in uh, la tendresse nationale. Yeah. And it's like this idealistic vision uh, for l- love, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a future of love. And so these kind of two visions end up squaring off. And meanwhile, the kind of pathetic and miserable character of Mackenzie King is tossed around in between these two forces, only to ultimately reestablish the disappointing uh, status quo that began the film. Okay, so that's kind of like a rough yeah. uh, sense of the plot. And so, yeah, maybe then we could talk about uh, – we've already mentioned a few, but some of the historical resonances or things that you thought were interesting along there. Do you have anything for that? The, the film itself is broken into 10 chapters. You know, it's like the story of Mackenzie King in 10 chapters. And, uh, and so it kind of opens up with uh, Mackenzie King – at this defective children's hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And like <laughs> the, cor- the, the quarantine for defective children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's t- speaking with this like incredibly sick young uh, girl. Uh, yeah, who has tuberculosis. Yeah, so. she has tu- tuberculosis, and he's little Charlotte. Yeah, little Charlotte. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, like little Charlotte, I've brought you a little gift, you know." And she's like, "Oh, you shouldn't have, Mister King, you know." And like opens it up, and it's like this gigantic, gaudy pin with his face on it. It's very extravagant. It has like two layers of ribbons, like hemming the pin. And in this scene, this like music starts to play, and. He turns to like Charlotte and he's like, what is, what is that God awful sound or whatever? And she's like, oh, it's music. Isn't it like wonderful? You know? And he's like, uh, and then she's like, this, uh, this lady, you know, plays it for us. And he looks up and it's, uh, it's, uh, this woman named, uh, Lady Ruby, who, t- who turns out to be the governor general's uh, daughter later on. Um, but she's uh, she's playing this harp and, and then when Mackenzie King turns to her playing the harp through this window there's all this light kind of shining down and then he he's like oh my god like you know she's real and it's like uh this this kind of moment where he is he thinks that he's uh, confronting the alignment of his mother's like oracular visions about his own destiny as prime minister because it turned like this figure ruby is a part of that uh, this this vision that his mother's been having. This kind of symbolism seems to be something that recurs throughout the film um, because later on you see Ruby appearing in various portraits that are decorating Mackenzie King's uh, 
apartment in his uh, mother's bedroom. They have like this aura around them that's like very religious and like cultish. And the historical resonance there, though, is that uh, Mackenzie King himself, like it was later revealed after he died because he had kept these really detailed diaries that he was deep into the occult and he was uh, into spiritualism and all this kind of stuff. So he would throughout his life, like consult with mediums and uh, have seances uh, in order to (laughs) speak to, yeah. yeah, in order to speak to the spirits of the dead, including, and especially his mother. Right. So he had this like weird relationship with his mother after her death, where he continued to try and uh, commune with her in, in, in various ways. You know, in his public facing life, he was a kind of devout uh, Presbyterian. And so he also um, had this more traditionally Christian expression of what he believed to be the destiny of uh, the nation and so on and so forth. And so I think that what the filmmakers uh, are playing on there is precisely this connection to the supernatural and the uh, kind of aura of, of power that that really did attend Mackenzie King's uh, tenure as as prime minister, and that was that was part of that that narrative. But he's kind of in the film; they've taken it and sort of twisted it to to connect into this uh, broader idea of the glory that attends the power of Canadian nationhood, and so. You know, I think that they did a really nice job of um, using that weird personal uh, obsession with this kind of mysticism in order to tell a broader story. I mean, we could go a bit more into that a bit later on. But were there other kind of historical resonances in the film that you uh, picked up on before we kind of move into the symbolic stuff proper? Well, for one... um the actual character of Mackenzie King is strongly related to his diaries. And Rankin had actually done a lot of research reading uh, Mackenzie King's diaries in order to construct uh, Mackenzie King's character as he's represented in the film. And one of the things he talks about is how uh, he could, like when he was writing in his diaries, he would never, he would talk about these struggles that he has with his desire, but he could never like name his, you know, sin. Uh, and so this uh, theme that Rankin really takes up in the film throughout the film, you have Mackenzie King's character constantly having this uh, struggle with his, his uh, desire, sexual desire and arousal that surrounds footwear. Mm-hmm. And then, there is this other character named Dr. Wakefields who is basically this doctor that works at a sanitarium and he's already met Mackenzie King before and <laughs> he like gives him this cactus that's like a warning <laughs> of, against like yeah. masturbation basically. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the most phallic symbol ever. Yeah, I know. It's like this prickly phallic symbol. And, <laughs> uh, and you notice in... <laughs> You notice in Mackenzie's uh, Mackenzie King's bedroom that like the cactus has grown from like being I don't know like 
seven inches to like 20 feet tall or something <laughs> like it's so fucking huge <laughs> and uh, definitely definitely like a kind of symbol of repression probably but yeah, doctor absolutely. but apparently dr wakefield's character is also uh, designed and constructed on the basis of real historical documents that Matthew Rankin had found it during his research on like different uh, anti-masturbatory strategies that were developed by these like doctors in the 19th century Victorian yeah. era. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the character has like a, a sanatorium, and uh, you know, at one point, Mackenzie King goes there to like be cured of his. Uh, like disgusting boot fetish his onanism as they call it right which is like the old word for masturbating <laughs> and there's all these kind of hilarious procedures that are carried out on him like he's put up on one of those like x crosses like what do they call them in kink you know and uh mm -hmm. it's he's like strapped to that and like has like strange devices like put on his penis that are like it's shock like, it's, yeah, it's shock like him <laughs> It's like a penis electrocution device. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and then like they yeah, electrocute him as they they uh they bring up these images of uh footwear. Yeah. <laughs> While uh Wakefield goes off about all this bunk science about how like you will become a disgusting race of people if you do not control your uh, emissions and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Like it, it there's this connection between masturbation and like racial purity mm -hmm. that he's connecting through this like faux like scientific discourse but that's actually like has a lot of historical depth to it right absolutely 19th century canadians were fucking thinking this this kind of deranged stuff about like race science and weird repressed uh victorian sexuality science you know yeah uh, this medicalization of sexuality you know all those themes are are there and I think that that's really interesting to think about the way that we are the direct descendants of that culture. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. And like, it, it seems really bizarre and alien when we look at it now, but some of those ideas are part of the kind of historical heritage here. Yeah, then Freddie mentioned Mackenzie King, but there there are multiple characters in this film that are also based on real historical figures, right? Yeah. Lord Muto is based on the fourth Earl of Minto, who was the Governor General of Canada. He was actually a historical figure that really endorsed the development of the Canadian military, the development of patriotism and unity as these like in really important values that would uh, be introduced into the national education system to build this very nationalistic population. <laughs> then there's like Bert Harper, who's based on Henry Albert Harper. Really in real life, he was just a close friend of Mackenzie King, studied poli-sci, worked as a journalist for a bit, and uh, he, was, he was roommates with Mackenzie King. And apparently Mackenzie King had said something like, he was the only man I had ever loved apart from my brother and father or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mackenzie King is possibly a closeted homosexual. This yeah. is part of that. that. That's actually part of it too, yeah, because he was he's apparently very lonely. You know, mm -hmm. he never he was never married, right? He was a bachelor for his entire life, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But um but then uh throughout the in, in the film itself, there's also this kind of dynamic between him and La, La Pointe. Yeah. We, we had mentioned J. Israel Tart, who's actually 
based on somebody named Joseph Israel Tart, who was a Canadian politician. He was also kind of similar to King. Um, just like a very centrist, moderate, shitty political figure in Canadian history. He uh, he was an ultramontist, I guess. So he was like a kind of alignment of Christ- Christian ideology and political ideology. And then he eventually um, uh, rejected that and went kind of in favor of conservatism and then liberalism. So he's like, he's just this really boring figure <laughs> <You're> just like <laughs> yeah but he, he's taken up in the film to be a kind of much more interesting character it's just, true uh, yeah. promoting that whole dress national yeah you know, exactly. which is kind of a stand-in i guess for like mm. more left political ideas but like it's very true. idealistic yeah. uh kind of model mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, all right. Maybe we can move into more talking about some of the symbolism and the psychic drama of the film and what we can draw to that. What does that tell us about the Canadian uh, national character? Because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. So do you want to move that way? Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Great. Alex was saying like one of the big themes of the film is this idea of disappointment and it's connected in with this sense of desire. So I think one of the great greatest characters in the film is the Judge Richardson who kind of judges this uh, contest that they have, the contest for yeah. the election. He's just a hilarious, yeah. hilarious character. But one of the things that he says in the film is 33 years ago, our queen bestowed us with a national sentiment the sentiment of disappointment, yeah. right? <laughs> so there's this sense that the Canadian character is like rooted in disappointment. And then they all kind of say this pledge and they all salute. And he says, do more than is your duty. And they all salute and say, yeah. expect less than is <laughs> your right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those are all the uh, prime ministerial candidates. And it's just this really funny scene that kind of sets that overarching tone for what Rankin sees Canada as being as this disappointing entity, which is still ultimately subordinate to the British monarchy. And that is like really explicit throughout the film, like this sense of subordination. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Alex was e- earlier recounting Mackenzie King following Ruby around. And, <laughs> you know, he's because he, he has this idea that they're going to marry and so on. So he's trying to uh, ingratiate himself himself to her speak to her and then when she kind of arrives at uh, Rideau Hall he says oh you know you must be lost this is the house of the governor general she says yes you know like Lord Muto is my father and he immediately like take there's a change in music he takes off his hat there's this new tone he's like your excellency uh, forgive me for speaking so freely allow me to express my uh, you know unquestioning inferiority (laughs) so there's this immediate like sense of deference to monarchy even as he's like aspiring to the role of prime minister. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really well done in the film. It builds out the way in which Canada is ultimately a British colony. Sovereignty is deferred to England through our constitutional order, you know? Yeah, definitely. And like that's even part of a lot of Canadian psychology. A lot of people that live here are way more interested in like England or uh, Europe or like even America than they are in like Canada. I mean, I don't, I, I don't personally feel this way, but I, I think that uh, a lot of people do where, yeah, there's this obsession with all of this layered history and all of these other countries that are 
supposedly more interesting or something or have more yeah. culture or like have have brought more on the international stage right in terms of artistic merit and work and stuff like this and yeah and there's this kind of like imposter syndrome that people feel about the national character of Canada. And I think it's not entirely misplaced because this is in a way like a shell country that, mm. you know, is really like constructed around the, these extractive industries, uh, lumber, mining, oil, and fossil fuel extraction. You know, that's really at the core of like what this nation exists to, to do. The actual national character is very constructed and feel and rings rings false in a way, and it is ultimately subordinate to this more potent, more legitimate form of monarchical power. So even as Canada has its independence, like its independence is in a way a disappointment, right? Like it's not what's ultimately desired. And there's this <laughs> desire, this kind of unfulfilled desire for uh, for monarchy and for power that is latent in the Canadian character. And I think that you can kind of see the film exploring that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even even the images, you know, it's the year 2020 and Canada uh, has been a country for like 155 years or something like this now. And uh, yet the imagery of these figures, like the Queen, the early prime ministers, I, th I think Mackenzie King is on a the $50 bill, uh, uh, Laurier is on the, uh, yeah. Sir Wilfrid Laurier is on the fi $5 or $10 bill, or like both, I think. No, isn't John A on the five? Or John A, yeah, John A is on the five, and yeah. uh, that's right. And uh, and so you know we have all these creepy old white uh, British. And we have, we have the queen, the queen on yeah. all of our coinage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's definitely this like residual stamp of monarchical power. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's this unfulfilled desire there, and that's like a major theme of the film is that the desire is is um, ultimately unfulfilled in the Canadian character. There's this almost longing or like homesickness for British Empire that is foundational for Canadian identity. Mm -hmm. These questions of desire really play out in the way that the personal life of Mackenzie King is portrayed in the film as well. And like this weird obsession around uh, sexual purity and, uh, you know, not masturbating, but like this failure to attain to the kind of like sexual and racial purity that is imagined, <laughs> the ideals of the country, the character who sort of stands in for the Canadian character, right? Uh, if you know what I mean by that, like that slippage in the term character. Yeah, so Mackenzie King, as as the character who stands in for this, always falls short of the ideals. At the same time, that the ideals themselves are totally uh, deranged and alien impositions, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think the film does a good job of displaying the strange, arcane traditions and rituals that actually like compose the government. Yeah, the aspiration to be prime minister or to Canadian governance in its current form is itself kind of deeply absurd yeah yeah <laughs> right and like that's shown in the film through these bizarre competitions that they do which yeah. are hilarious <laughs> and and the, the most symbolic one is of course they turn butter in front of a face a giant like face of the queen and this is a competition to see who will be prime minister and so <laughs> the judge is there and he's like you know ready set 
churn and then they all start churning butter yeah. and of course it looks like they're masturbating right like yeah, it's this yeah. kind of symbolic thing all in front of the giant face of the yeah. queen <laughs> <laughs> so there's this yeah this like sexual tension desire uh, mm, totally. uh, uh, uh imbued in the way in which like monarchical power is expressed which is i just Really, really well handled in the film and really funny and also kind of resonates with the way that the kind of glory that attends power in this country is articulated. I just saw a photograph of, what's his name? Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer and they're kind of dragging the Speaker of the House up to his chair. And this is like an old ritual from the days of British Parliament where the speaker was like reluctant to sit before the king because then his life was under threat. And so obviously that's not the case in Canada today, but this ritual persists where the speaker of the house feigns reluctance to take on his role. And then the, yeah, <laughs> and, the then, and then the leaders of the party like, ha ha, like drag him along, you know? Oh and it's like this weird, weird ritual that they do. This is the stuff that we're like attached to the kind of pomp and circumstance of mm-hmm. the way pow- power is exercised in this country is derivative of monarchy and is ultimately still subordinate to the kind of traditions of British sovereignty. Um, that's that's bizarre. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something yeah. really strange and. Uh, you know, there is kind of like a sense of coitus interruptus or something going on there where there is this like unfulfilled and disappointed uh, sense of desire uh, really at the heart of power. Yeah, I think that's very true. So the the competition that Keegan was talking about is in the second chapter of the film. And all of the politicians, uh, the actual things that they're supposed to do they they end up like the first the first round of the competition is uh uh ribbon cutting right and like they have to cut they have to cut this ribbon very elegantly and like have this uh beautiful poise you know so again it's this uh this theme of performance and uh pomp and circumstance so the absurdity of it leg wrestling um (laughs) waiting waiting your turn uh, tree and vegetable smelling contest, <laughs> uh, urinating like urinating and signing your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pissing your name in the snow. Pissing like, your t- <laughs> the glorious Canadian tradition. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, endurance tickling is another one. And then the, the last one is baby seal clubbing. Like, yeah, yeah, and it's like uh, that's another that's another recurring theme throughout the film too where like uh on the one hand you have like repression and desire masturbation but then there's like these really intense scenes involving uh like kind of a murderous desire violence Violence. yeah Yeah, like gratuitous violence because uh these uh like baby seal clubbing contest isn't like real baby seals they're like stuffed animals popping out of these little holes kind of like in an arcade game but they bleed but, like but they bleed yeah so it's yeah. like it gets uh it is like freakishly violent as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh but in that entire scene so you have that that uh, that this absurd competition which is very much reflective of the reality of political campaigning, which is extremely competitive and pretty absurd too, uh, and uh, especially with uh, with 
campaign ads and uh, like debates. The debates, like the debates suck, and um, the whole fucking marketing aspect around it all. But uh, then, and then, uh, yeah, Mackenzie King actually. It turns out that he uh, hasn't won the competition, and uh, and so he's like, you know, his character is disappointed. He didn't. He didn't actually become prime minister. Um, you know, he tied for second place with his like arch nemesis uh, that drives his character down this like spiral where he is uh, uh, struggling with his his sexual desire and sexual fetish for footwear. He ends up going to Winnipeg to <laughs> to purchase um, a used boot that was worn by Lady Ruby. Uh, in the Boer War, I think. And while he's uh, while he's there, he buy he purchases this boot for like four hundred bucks, which is I don't know, like a significant sum in like the nineteenth century, right? Uh, and uh, and then he gets caught by uh, Doctor Wakefield. But apparently, this whole there's this like weird underworld that is kind of created out of Winnipeg, and apparently that entire world is actually inspired by a public park in Winnipeg that was built on top of a, a, a huge pile of garbage. There, once again, is this like historical resonance uh, uh, between the like Rankin's reimagining of Winnipeg and, uh, and like an actual specific site in yeah. in the city of Winnipeg. Yeah, I liked I yeah. like Van- Vancouver too where it's just oh, these yeah. these green hills with stumps like it's been entirely clear cut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he, he, his, uh, his reimaginings of these locations in like the set design is really interesting because it ends up um, creating these like visual hyperboles, you know, mm-hmm. kind of of, yeah. of of these real th- phenomenon or phenomena. In, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, or like cliches even that yeah. are kind of associated with uh, these locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of the other big themes in the film is this conflict between, like, fascism and what they call mm-hmm. the fury and uh, la tendresse nationale. This is kind of a stand-in for a lot of different conflicts and tensions and, like, dialectical elements in Canadian society. Like, Anglo versus, like, French Canada um, is happening at one level. But also, I think the fury really stands in for this, like fascistic nationalist threat that is always kind of like bubbling just beneath the surface in Canadian society and uh, in the kind of Canadian national uh, imagination, collective imagination and so on. There's this kind of wonderful scene in the film where there's this huge propaganda presentation basically where the governor general lord muto like gets up and he starts talking about this disgusting like race of uh, evildoers the poor who are threatening mother england like the virginal pure like mother you know i love the line where he says they're led by what cornelius von whatever i forget the character's name oh uh yeah uh, paul kruger yeah cornelius von kruger (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's this like threatening figure he says he's waging 
a perverse crusade against the cause of good. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's <laughs> such a funny line. But I think using the Boer War in this way, I think is really cleverly done in the film because it's a way of standing in for the kind of race hate, which is part of the Canadian uh, national identity and the Canadian national psyche. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's able, so it's able to articulate that in a way that doesn't just like come off as disturbing to actually portray in film because, you know, as we know, the Boers are also white settlers in just like another fucking horrific settler colony. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And (laughs) so they managed to portray that tendency and evoke that role that race plays in fascism without having to like demonize a a race in kind of in reality, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's a, it's a kind of fantastical representation of this in order to play out the actual like psychic understanding. And so there's this just barrage of like propaganda images, which are really kind of like beautifully done. You know, you see kill hate flashing up and the the boar is standing there as he, you know, he's he's, a baby in a kid. Yeah, he shoots a baby in its cradle. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, and he's like, he, he's half man and half elephant, and he's swilling yeah, yeah. beer out of like his elephant trunk. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, so they're they're set up to be these like disgusting monsters who want to like um, destroy England, which is this like angelic figure in the portrayal. You know, the the mother England, and uh, you know he's like Canada. The voice of England is calling to you. Like, do you hear it? Will you rescue her? You know, yeah. He, exactly. So he fires up the crowd, and they're all like, yeah. like they're going to exterminate the boar. Yeah, and. Uh, then the two of the two of the characters, Lady Ruby and Bert Harper, are like standing on the uh, on this ship, which is going to head out to sail, and they're saying, "We will not return until the Boer race has been exterminated and like the cause of good is restored." You know, and it's like this: the ship says "SS Fury," Fury. yeah, <laughs> directly underneath them, just like the incredibly fascist like yeah. imagery going on, right? Um, yeah. And I, th- I thought that – so that way of portraying the relationship between race and fascism and its um, essential core connection to like this driving force of Canadian consciousness, I thought that was really excellently uh, portrayed in the film. No, definitely, definitely. And it's so great because uh, this is also a kind of inherent function of like nationalism. This is part of the – the nation building project, which is to fashion these like extremely fascist people, send them to to war to defend the British Empire's uh, own investments in uh, South Africa, basically, right? And Rankin, by on the one hand, yes, he he does this like extremely exaggerated, artificial, theatrical portrayal of like race um, but it's it's still done extremely powerfully, and you know it's scary as fuck, and it's it's very real though because this is part of the rationale that had to be instilled in people to go to war in the first place. You know what I mean? Like to to de- dehumanize others and to 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 you know to defend the territory, et cetera, et cetera. So it's 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 interesting for that. 
Yeah, I think it stands in not just for the Boer War, but like in the construction of Canadian identity, as we've talked 100%. about, as this subordinate kind of identity to like an ultimate imperial power, mm-hmm. um, it, it needed this kind of friend-enemy distinction where the mm-hmm. racialized other, uh, the racialized other is demonized and there's this construction of the purity of like the white c- Canadian race, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we exactly. actually, that's what we actually see in this land, right? With like the destruction of indigenous people and um, a lot of the ra- racist, fascist and genocidal policies that historically yeah. have been enacted in this country, right? Like, yeah, definitely. Um, and so without having, like, he's able to evoke that um, in the film, he being Rankin, I mean, uh, the filmmakers, like the whole, because part of it's the beauty of the editing and the sets and so on. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's many yeah, people involved, but yeah. yeah. So the film is able to um, evoke that without having to like actually demonize indigenous people, but it's able to, you know, in your gut when you watch this, like what is really being spoken about here. Yeah, you know, no, you know, you know that what what the threat of this kind of fascism really is. And yet it's lampooned because it's mm-hmm. so ridiculous in the film. Like it's so mm-hmm. absurd and yeah. goofy and like over the top. And you yeah. know, you're watching it and you're like, wow, who could ever fall for this idiotic propaganda? And yet yeah. it's like, that is literally the what? way in which this national identity was constructed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was through idiotic racist propaganda. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's like not an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, even there's a, uh, that uh, indigenous scholar from the Menominee Nation in Wisconsin, Roland Robinson, the one that uh, you introduced me to. Yeah. But he he even wrote this paper on how like settler states are like the base structure of fascism itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that it really makes sense because uh, if you if you considered if the the vast majority of the Canadian population was targeted by the RCMP and the police and like thrown in, like incarcerated at the same rate, you know, uh, and targeted by all of these other mechanisms, mechanisms of dispossession, then like mm-hmm. no one would ever fucking hesitate to say that the settler state is like a fascist state. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. And we even see this with Land Back Lane right now, you know, it's like, okay, a mm-hmm. police who technically doesn't have jurisdiction over yeah. like a sovereign nation is entering their lands and is just arresting people and fucking disappearing them into prisons where it's like that, you know, there's technically low, no legal jurisdiction. So there's this slippage of legality there, which mm-hmm. is also um, constitutive of fascism, right? There's the creation of the, 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 the figure who's outside of the law over mm-hmm. whom like ultimate violence can be exercised. And we actually know from historical documents that, um, Hitler himself like highly admired the um, systems put in place by Canada and the United States in order to um, incarcerate and exterminate indigenous people. And he wanted to do the exact same thing uh, to the Slavs and uh, to the Jews. This was his uh, mm-hmm. model was just like, wow, you managed to clear the land and create this uh, this great open land, you know, and that's his Hitler's vision of the Lebensraum, right? The the living space for the German people. And that, that's inspired by what was done in the North American continent by the settler states of uh, Canada and America, right? And so it's mm-hmm. important to, really important to remember that stuff that like yeah. this, that kind of 
literal fascism is the kernel of the identity of these states because it was materially necessary in order to create them you know yeah yeah i mean uh, the same same goes for the uh, uh uh south african apartheid system yeah it was uh, like white south africans uh who traveled to canada and america were inspired by the indian reserve system yeah you know and they're like oh like this is a great system uh, we're gonna going to model ours off of yours, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. And South Africa got supposedly got rid of it, but I'm sure it uh, remains spectrally. And so just building on that, I, I think that's another reason that I really, really like the portrayal of the RCMP in this film. Mm, so yeah. they're, they're portrayed in this very typical, stereotypical way in a way, but it's like also <laughs> portrayed as like the object of ultimate horror. So when they arrive, for example, to pick up Mackenzie King when he's being carried to taken to the, uh, the governor general's mansion. You know, they have these masks on and they're they're low lighting, you know, and even though they're yeah. standing in a Canada goose and wearing these red coats, there's like this heavy, dark organ that comes in behind them. And, you know, their voices are like these kind of like Batman-esque, yeah. like terrifying, like, you're like, chariot is ready, you know, <laughs> they have this like, chariot is ready, Mr. King. Yeah, like there's this like horror. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they're going to be swept up into the world of real like dark power and uh i thought that that symbolic. very nightmare nightmare, nightmare. Yeah, yeah yeah and i think De- that's just, demonic almost. yeah exactly yeah they're demonic figures yeah. and like that is such a good portrayal of the rcmp like that's really what they are you know they were designed originally to clear land to uh police native people and um to kill them and drive them away such that uh mm-hmm. white white settlers could move in right like this was uh the original inspiration for the rcmp and in many ways they continue to carry out that function today uh as we've seen most recently in Wet'suwet'en, but in you know countless other cases as well like this is is the function of this police force and uh, that's incredibly dark and it's incredibly fascistic and so portraying it in a way Mm -hmm. in a film where it is an object of disturbing horror i just think it's really Mm -hmm. effective and manages to twist the stereotypical like image of the mountie that you see at like a canadian like roadside tourist stop you know Mm -hmm. where it's like look i got this mountie pin and this isn't this cute this weird kind of cutesy figure that we have is actually twisted into an object of horror which lends it an air of reality that the cutesy cartoon figure lacks. That actually resonated with me. Uh, You're familiar with this Kent Monkman painting where you see the kind of jackbooted priests and the RCMP taking the children. Uh, The scream? The scream, yeah. Taking the children from uh, indigenous people to go and put them in residential schools. Yeah. And so again, there like the RCMP is – displayed as while in this very like stereotypical classic way as Mm -hmm. an object of horror and so i think that that seeing that tradition start to emerge of like portraying this classic canadian imagery and by giving it this this darkness it actually makes it more real more close to the the history and i think that Mm -hmm. that is important like we're talking about the way like settlers Part of the settler project is the is the forgetting of this history. Yeah, and by starting to see these images, I think it can be really good for people who might not be aware of some of this stuff that we've been discussing in this kind of mm-hmm. the, this undercurrent of fascism in this country to uh, shift their perception. You know, mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I really like that about the film. Yeah. And uh, the costumes are really good too. Like, yeah. uh, I mean, in this particular reimagining of the RCMP, they, they, they actually look like they're wearing the costumes that the Buckingham Palace guards usually wear with like the long tall hats, you know? And, yeah. uh, and, uh, they have like some feathers, uh, that are like hanging off the top of their hats and shit. But, um, uh, no, it's true. I think that, I think that that is also a really interesting focus in the film. And that's what I like about this film so much too, is that, you know, on the one hand, it feels like he's, exaggerating all these points and it's very hyperbolic so theatrical and like kind of ridiculous but Mm -hmm. it's also so fucking real yeah (laughs) it's so real yeah so he does an incredible job at doing this yeah it's a real like artful use of surrealism right yeah yeah you know because it comes off like watching it like on the surface it's very psychedelic but these uh, surrealist symbols are used to tell like a really actually deep and yeah real story about this country Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sorry, do you have something to say? Oh, no, no, well, yeah. I was just going to actually mention that scene where kind of running along with this uh, this fascistic element, there's uh, the scene where later on in the film, Mackenzie King uh, is call, like called upon uh, by, who is it, like Mr. Speaker or something like this? Who, who's that figure who is... Um, the judge? The judge, thank you. Yeah, yeah, the judge. He's called upon by the judge to meet with uh, Lord Muto after like Bird Harper's mentioned, uh, or like has like apparently died. Yeah. And so he goes to meet Lord Muto and then <laughs> he walks into this like... <laughs> extremely fascistic uh, sinister building you know yeah because like they're you know it's like the 19th century but they have like these sliding doors they're like very yeah. industrial yeah and like and uh he walks in uh a king walks into this room and there's this fucking huge triangular shaped uh portrait of lord muto with this gaze yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> really funny but also kind of frightening uh, look in his face <laughs> yeah and then uh he just hears this voice of lord muto coming out of these speakers like mr king do you see this red button and you know, this red <laughs> button comes up on yeah. the floor and he's like i want you to push that button and then yeah. king's like oh yes uh sure uh yeah i'll, I'll do that for you he like brings up his hand and he's like um i'm sorry uh what what does this button do and then you know he's like <laughs> You do not ask questions. You know you push the button when you have to. He's like, okay, okay. And like push, pushes the button. He's yeah. like, you have you have exterminated like all of the Boer race or something. And he's yeah. like, what? You know? And then he's like, ah, ha, 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 I'm just kidding. He's like, I got you. You know, and he's like, so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah. the prime minister needs to be able to push a button when he's told to. Exactly. It's like, again, reinforcing the like subordination of exactly. the Canadian like executive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That and and like- that's, that's another kind of theme, right? Like this, this uh, willingness on the part of, uh, in, in the subordinate position as prime minister to, uh, give up your, your quote unquote principles, like, because that's King, King is always trying to like, hold on to these principles that he has. Right. But then yeah. he always gives them up because yeah. he just can't, he can't fulfill his, yeah. You know, he's always disappointed. He's always a disappointment. He's always, he, he's always a disappointment to like the world and himself. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's great. And he's say he says to Lord Muto, you know, do you think I would just give up all of my principles? You know, and yeah. Lord Muto's like, yes. <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> do you really? Yes. <laughs> that part's really funny. Yeah. yeah. But that comes right after the terrifying, like, you will either carry the fury of this country or you will be consumed by it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's yeah. like this threat, like, no, you have to install the fascist state here. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because, um, and so that kind of comes about, like, just maybe mm-hmm. this is a good segue into this. One of the mm-hmm. last kind of themes I wanted to talk about was uh, mm-hmm. the kind of political possibilities that are being portrayed in the film. Totally. Yeah. So just to give the kind of plot summary to make it make sense. So Ruby and Bert Harper, they've gone off to fight in the Boer War. They return, but upon their return, they've like converted to La Tendresse Nationale. And they've realized that war is wrong and like there shouldn't be fascism, you know, and instead there should be, um, you know, universal love and brotherhood. Muto, as this figure who just like loves the imperial fascism, he thinks this is like disgusting. And it's really funny because like La Tendresse Nationale is always portrayed as unquestionably good, you know, <laughs> but he just like thinks, oh, these disgusting traitors, you know, and he's like has no time for it. It's really Anyway, so yeah. his, and so it's his own daughter and like his chosen candidate who are have these principles and want to like establish like a new possibility and a new order. And mm-hmm. so then Muto tasks Mackenzie King with carrying the fury, which is the flag of like fascism. And so it's this like red and black imperial eagle, right? And uh, so then they have to have a competition, a race to the center of the Quebec ice maze uh, in order to raise the flag either of La Tendresse Nationale or of the fury in place of the disappointment, which is also functions as the name of the Canadian flag. And it's the old Canadian flag, right, with the Union Jack up in the corner with the red background and the crest on it in the style of like the contemporary Ontario flag, for example. And so it's this like competition for the future of the 20th century. Is it going to yeah. be? A, is it going to be a fascist future? Is it going to be a future of la tendresse of of absolute love? You know? Yeah. So the judge Richardson is presiding, and he says, you know, it's a struggle for the future of the nation: a century of absolute war or a century of absolute love? You know? Yeah. And so it's like <laughs> these two forces that are in this intense like tension and competition uh, with one another. Yeah, there's something really interesting going on there, right? Because in the end, what ends up happening, I mean, that whole scene is fantastic. The whole drama that plays out like through the ice maze (laughs) is like really good. But there's some, you know, that's the Burt Harper thing where he dives into the cold, uh, ice cold water and ultimately drowns, except in this, he comes up stabbed by a narwhal. (laughs) It's just (laughs) very absurd. And then Ruby. And so then there's also the fulfillment of like the mother's like Oracle thing where, with Ruby, where she like holds oh, him yeah. and stuff, yeah. But I think one of the things that's interesting about that is like through the competition itself, both sides are sort of like discredited. You know, the Fury like ends up folding in on itself because mm-hmm. like Mian tries to 
sabotage King partway through. And then, you know, Nurse LaPointe comes and like rescues King. So the fury is left behind because Nurse LaPointe is actually committed to La Tendresse. Then this, this other character, like an agent of fury, tries to stop Harper and Ruby from hoisting up La Tendresse, that La flag. And Mm -hmm. so in, in the pro, in the struggle, like Ruby actually kills him and she cuts off his head with her skate. Yeah, yeah. And it rolls on the flag. So it, (laughs) right? Like it smears blood all over La Tendresse, which is like what Mm -hmm. Jay Israel Tarrant had said, you know, La Tendresse will never be uh, stained by a drop of blood. And so that's actually discredited as well. And so the only thing left after this like competition is for Mackenzie King to just raise back up. The just the just the flag of the disappointment, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so political stagnancy, right? It's yeah, like the political possibilities for the 20th century end up uh, not being fulfilled. And this is this is actually, I think, a common sentiment among a lot of people even today, where it's like, oh, political change, social change. No, no, like that's not going to happen. You know? Yeah, it's, like, it's always like conservatives, liberals. Conservatives, it's not realistic. Conservatives, yeah. yeah, you know, look at the. I mean, I know I'm jumping outside of Canada, but look at the idealism around like the Bernie campaign and then the disappointment mm-hmm. around him just getting smacked down. Yeah, and now totally. fucking Kamala Harris was chosen as the VP and it's like could not be more tone deaf to the bubbling like revolutionary sentiment of like defunding police and these protests against police brutality. And instead they have an architect of the carceral state and one of its prime agents in the form of Kamala and yeah. uh, Biden who are going to be running on this uh, on this bill, you know, <laughs> and it's like, what could be more disappointing? And yeah. I think it's similar in in the Canadian context where the the possibilities just don't exist, right? Like there isn't. It's precisely mm-hmm. this closing down of political possibility which characterizes mm-hmm. the disappointment, which characterizes the national sentiment exactly. that was like bestowed by the Queen and so on and so forth, right? <laughs> and you know, and, and this is actually really fitting for the character of uh, Mackenzie King himself because he was an industrial strategist for uh, Rockefeller who helped him overcome like strikes and so on and so he was a believer in like the alliance between capital and labor and that was a big theme of his real historical tenure as prime minister right uh, was that he thought that capital and labor would, were, were natural allies and so he was like opposed to labor unions and all this stuff and was trying to create this status quo and ultimately like he's kind of really like one of the most important forefathers of Canadian liberalism in that respect, because he saw the role of the government as like mediating between capital and labor. And so like anything that would like stack the deck on the side of labor in the form of unions or whatever was a problem for him. And then in the film, you know, he is portrayed as precisely this like, ah, middle of the road, like just raise the disappointment once again. Like, no, there could be no, no possibility, neither like a century of absolute love, nor a century of absolute hate. hate. (laughs) Yeah. But rather a century of disappointment, you know, and here we are, you know, Rankin's looking back at the, at the 20th century and kind of telling this story of like ultimate disappointment (laughs) and the closing down of political possibilities which has characterized the past hundred years of Canadian politics yeah so I just I think that the ending's fantastic and then there's there's this whole Freudian part in the end where like his mother appears to him and she has this like four poster (laughs) bed with these curtains and and we haven't really talked about that but like they have this really like disgusting relationship 
And, uh, you know, then you just hear her voice say, say to him, like, did you win? He's like, yes, mother. And there's this kind of like retreat back into the womb. You know, she opens up the, he goes into the end of the film is him like going into the curtains, uh, yeah. of her bed and being like swallowed back up by the womb. And, you know, I think that's very like symbolic as well as we saw like England is portrayed as the mother. And as we talked about, like there's this sense of this, uh, unfulfilled desire for the queen. There's this weird, almost Oedipal kind of complex there that characterizes like the Canadian psyche and, um, in a way like that is essential to what become the political possibilities, right? It's like, well, in the end, we can't actually stray from the mother, from the vision of the mother for our destiny, right? Canada is incapable yeah. of creating a political possibility outside of the, the bestowal of the kind of national character by the queen and by the British Empire and so on and so forth. We can't yeah, yeah. we can't escape it. We're like sucked back into the, <laughs> into the womb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. Um, yeah, do you have any final thoughts on the film overall or recommendations? Uh, last connections you want to make before we kind of call it? No, I don't. I uh, I don't know. I feel I feel like we really we really covered a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the themes, you know, disappointment, desire, race, fascism, war, you know, the RCMP, like uh, building national identity, constructing the national psyche and consciousness, uh, the the embeddedness of Canadian subjectivity in relation to uh, the, uh, the history of the British Empire and its own colonial history and stuff. So um, I think that... Uh, whoever's you know listened uh, to this episode uh, should really check this film out. You know, there are lots of things you can get from it. You can watch it more than once, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's I've, great. I've, I've seen that. this film three times now, yeah, and uh, I really like it. Uh, I just think it's a fantastic film, and that you know, if you're Canadian, you should you should watch this. Like, you'll. <laughs> You'll, yeah. you'll get something out of it, you know, like, cause we've, we've managed to talk about a lot of the themes, but so much of this film is like image driven. Like it's really, uh, like the art direction and, and everything is really beautiful and like the textures. Yeah. And so it's like, um, it's worth it. If you're yeah. like, wow, I just had the whole film spoiled for me. Like you guys literally just described the ending. Like it's still worth seeing just to have like the visual texture of the film. And there's so much that we yeah, didn't, that we didn't cover. So I would, I would highly recommend it and um you know shout out to matthew rankin and everyone else who worked on this film because yeah. uh, you know you guys did an excellent job of just like capturing something so uh real about so surreal about yeah. the uh, canadian uh identity and this way of being it's true that we didn't really talk about the music uh the role of the music and um and the set design and everything very much but it it just it's it's it is really done so incredibly well Shout out to Matthew Rankin. And uh, maybe, you know, if any of you guys uh, end up uh, watching the film and you have any other th uh, other thoughts on it, you should uh, send us an email, you know, at yeah. uh, thepoppertapes at gmail.com or interact with us on uh, Twitter or something like this. Yeah, so, absolutely. And uh, it's yeah. fun to do this again after a little while away and just life busyness getting in the way. So we hope to keep kind of pushing forward with uh, this popper tape 
project uh, overall because uh, I think it's something that we really love to do. So if it's um, something that people like to listen to as well, we'd love to hear from you and connect with you guys. Yeah, and like thanks so much for uh, sticking sticking around with us. Uh, you know, we're been doing this for over a year now, and you know, we're slowly growing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even with the amount of followers that we do have, it's really awesome to know that uh, there are folks out there just like you know enjoying the content. You know, and yeah. and uh, it just makes it all the more meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And so just a final plug to say, uh, definitely if you have the disposable income or even if you don't, uh, you should go and donate to uh, uh, 1492 Landback Lane. Uh, we'll throw that up in the show notes and, uh, you know, support it as well. by I like we were talking about the ignorance and the forgetting earlier and like, you know, look into this stuff guys like just it's worth learning about it's really um interesting and um incredibly important Mm -hmm. and uh so it's just it's worth educating yourself and it's worth um trying to educate others as well like talking to your friends and family um about these issues which really like um are kind of at the heart of what's going on in canada right now so yeah and uh With that, I guess I'll say uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. See ya.